have Discovering Christianity on at our church tonight, so I have to go and take someone home. So I'm sorry to have to run away. Um, I thought we'd maybe have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, I've done a wee study of the life of King Saul, so I thought maybe we could just do some of that tonight. And uh, so very quickly, just to have a look at the book of 1 Samuel. We've got two Samuels in the Old Testament, and um, we don't really know who wrote them. Everybody says it must be Samuel who wrote them, but um, it's not that obvious as to who actually wrote them. But we, we do know the purpose. The purpose of both books is to give us a history of Israel. And uh, so if you're into history, well, have a good look at Samuel. It shows us Israel's first king, who was Saul. And then it continues to record the rise of the second king, who was David. And um, there's a wonderful key verse in 1 Samuel 15. Before we get to chapter 16, let me just give you some background before it. And here's a wonderful verse in 22 of chapter 15. And it asks a question of us. Does the Lord really want sacrifices and offerings? And uh, now, speaking to the Jews, they would know all about that. But here's the surprise. No, he doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants you to obey him. So there's the first point for tonight, is obedience. In the light of this key verse, God wants our obedience. Not just our good intentions, but he wants us to have obedience to him now that's very easy to say isn't it Uh, but in practice to come out and be obedient to God now God actually warns the people of Israel about them having a king and uh, by accepting the king in fact what they were doing they were rejecting God and that's the danger here what you see we want a king But you see, God cared and God loved the people of Israel. And God led them out of uh, all sorts of situations. And what God is saying here is, I am really the one they have rejected as their king. So when they shout for a king, they are actually turning their backs on God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, there's a great cry goes out in the people And the cry is very simple. We want a king. You can can imagine such a crowd, a nation of people. We want a king. And the real sadness in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel is this. Why do you want a king? We want a king because we want to be like everybody else. And that that strikes a, a real sad note in these people. We want to be like everybody who's around about us. Those to the north and south and east and so on. They all have a king. So this is their reaction. That's why we want a king. They've got one. We want one. Uh, And again, God actually gives them their request. What a gracious God we have. He gave them what they wanted. You know, we, on a personal note... We need to be careful what we ask God for. Because God might give us 
what we want. Everything should be, of course, in accordance to God's will. So, as we move on. Chapter 10, verse 24. And all the people were of one mind. How sad. They wanted a king. And their decision was final. And in this situation in chapter 10, it's Saul, the first king, who is appointed as king. He, he was a bit hesitant about becoming a king. But you see, he had no opportunity to protest against the unity of the people who were screaming and shouting, we want a king. In chapter 12 of Samuel, Samuel as God's representative hands over to Saul as their first king. People got their wish for a king. And as, a, as we do a little Bible study tonight on the life of Saul, what you find is, and what I've discovered, is despite a very good start this man had, how do you pick a, how do you pick a king? You know, Saul looked kind of like royalty. He was kind of head and shoulders above the rest. He was tall, he was handsome. He had that noble air about him. He would have been about 30 year old uh, when he became king. And it's reckoned he reigned for about 42 years. But one early fatal mistake of this new king of Israel was Saul. And he had failure to listen to God. And failure to carry out God's wishes and God's command. And there's a danger here for each one of us. No matter who we are. We just can't simply overrule God. You know, it's never about what I want. But it's always about what he wants. What God wants. And Saul's life kind of screams at us. In a large sign which says beware of what you want. We are told that if you have a king. You'll have problems. With a new king, things are going to change. Demands are going to be made upon the people. And there's a clear warning of the life of which is to come with a king reigning. There'll be taxes, there'll be demands. There'll be demands for raising an army, the young people, uh, and so on. And so, even despite that warning, the people said, we want a king. We want a king. So, let's just look at Saul's life. In the early days of his reign as king, things actually looked quite good. As a king, he became obedient to God. He seemed to be a man who was prepared to listen to God. And there, actually there was a real sense of humility in this man's early reign. And you think, well, this looks good. This looks promising. And as the people shouted, we want a king, it looks as if they've got a good one in the early days and years of this man's reign. But as you kind of examine Samuel, you then see what happens a bit later on. 
what in the early days it was good obedience listening but sad to say he starts a decline in his life a good start but how things are starting to change and the great eye becomes part of his life and so as he starts with God he's now a kind of mixture between God and myself and the decline begins to set in and as you as you again examine the beginnings was a humble life and obedient to God which is encouraging but later uh, what things started to come into the man's life the pride the hatred of people he became a man stubborn wanting his own way selfish self-centered and pride developed into envy and hatred turned into murder what a contrast we're seeing now from the man in his early days of kingship to hatred and murder to pride and envy and there's a progression which sadly is going in the wrong direction he is he is going down the way and away from god Uh, it's so sad that saul uh, was in a moment of his reign commanded by god to completely destroy the amalekites says god destroy everything they've got that's what God wants. But what is it Saul wanted? Not a very good position to ever be in before God. Because if you read Samuel, he decided, well, I'll, I think I'll just keep their cattle. And what I can do, I can sacrifice them later on. And Samuel's words in chapter fifteen twenty-two: God doesn't want your sacrifices. These animals should have been killed. Everything sacrificed for God. God does not want your sacrifices, Saul. He wants you to obey him. So he's sliding away from God. And and how is it we are in our obedience towards God this week? Is obedience at the very center of our lives? Uh, We can always sacrifice a little bit of time for God. A bit of money. Or an hour or two on a Sunday. Uh, We can become so busy. But what we need to do is to ask. Is it all as a result of obedience to God? So eventually we've got to chapter 16. (laughs) Uh, So I hope that's a good background to your help. In chapter 16 we see the final act of of, uh, Samuel. Now Saul was already anointed by Samuel. Now it's his last secret task. Saul is still king. But Samuel is commanded to anoint another king. Imagine the situation where we've got Saul as a king. And Samuel is creeping about. And he's anointing another second one. The successor. Imagine what would happen if Saul had found out what was going on uh, in this. So it, I feel quite sorry for, for Samuel uh, in this situation. So he's asked to anoint a new king. 
while the other one is still alive. Let me just flick over to Matthew chapter 1 for a moment. Because literally this is a jigsaw puzzle which is coming together piece by piece. It's a wonderful jigsaw. Ruth and Boaz, parents to Obed, then Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, and guess who was the last piece of the jigsaw in Matthew 1? We see Samuel's obedience to God, which takes him in his final job to Bethlehem, to the residence of Jesse, the father of the household. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And as chapter 16 opens in verse 2 and 3, but Samuel said, how am I to go? And here's the worry and the concern. If Saul hears about what I'm up to, he will kill me. Look how far Saul has departed from his early obedience to God and humility. He's going to kill me if he finds out. And the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. You get a real sense of Samuel's concern here. His obedience to God could cost him his life. This is his last great act for God. And you, you begin to discover that there's no love lost between King Saul and God's representative Samuel. He could easily be murdered. Samuel's faith doesn't seem as very strong as it should be at this time. I suppose we all have moments in our lives when we feel just a bit down, a bit weak in our faith. And so Samuel is just saying, how, how can I do this? I'm in trouble with the king if he finds out. So this hatred. The anointing is kind of covered up using the pretense of a sacrifice. And this, this heifer is taken for such a sacrifice. And it, once again we have an anointing of a king which is kind of in secret. The whole task seems low key also. There was Samuel and a servant who was, lacking, who was looking after the heifer. But notice there's a reaction as they came near to Bethlehem. The town elders, what did they do? They trembled. At the sight of God's representative, this man, Samuel, they were talking amongst themselves and they were saying, we must have done something wrong here. Why is this man coming straight to us? And they were trembling. The elders took things personally, thinking it meant some kind of judgment from God upon them. There was guilt and there was fear. Have you come in peace, they said? Are you at peace with us? Verse 4 now. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, they trembled, as I've said. Sanctify yourselves. And with prayer, Samuel sanctified Jesse and his sons. Verse 7 is a warning. 
of how to choose the next king. The choice was made of a, of a handsome, tall kind of character who, well, if he looks like a king, he's good enough to be our king, kind of. Don't bother about his height or his stature. Samuel had been there before with Saul. Because I've refused him, for the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks into the heart. It's a wonderful re remembrance for us. As God looks down from heaven, he looks through everything we've got. He looks straight into our hearts. Now that's the scary bit. But you see, it's worth reminding ourselves, this is how God works. The word heart and soul are used interchangeable in the Old Testament. So God is looking not at our houses, our cars, or our bank balances, or how many degrees we might have. God is looking at us tonight, and he's asking one big question. What sort of heart do we have? What sort of heart do I have? This might be a question, but it's a question that God actually knows the answer, and that's even scarier than the question. The most precious thing that we possess is our heart, our souls. Mark 8 and 3, remember, what shall it profit a man or a woman if he or she will gain the whole world but lose his soul? You're going to have everything, yet you can actually have nothing without the soul. Without the soul. Nothing of importance. So actually God is a heart gazer. And he's a great leveller. And it doesn't matter if uh, we were born in a palace or even born in a gutter. God still looks at our hearts and our souls tonight. All those things we've been desperate to have and to hold, all those things we've put ourselves uh, into much effort to, to get, God actually casts them all aside and he simply looks at our hearts. And he gazes upon our very souls. That's a very sobering thought tonight. Says the words of Samuel, if our hearts are right, then you see God is satisfied. And he's satisfied with us tonight, if that's our situation before God. So what is God's satisfaction rating as he scans each one of us tonight? Each row from front to back. Spiritual character such as holiness and godliness indicates a heart which is set upon God. You know how NHS can't carry out soul surgery. There's no medicine in a bottle. There's no pill in a blister pack developed especially for soul problems. Souls can only be put right by their maker. Practical lessons are beginning to stack up for us tonight. Verse 6. David was the youngest of the family. But I get a sense of this family that he was insignificant. Almost forgotten about. He's out of the way. He's tending sheep. And he's not really considered for this appointment with Samuel. God passes over seven brothers that were older. 
stronger, bigger, mightier in the eyes, eyes of the world. But the youngest boy was forgotten by the family. But you see, David was chosen, and chapter tells us why he was chosen. Wonderful verse. The answer to the question is simple and basic. He was chosen, said chapter 16, because he had a heart for God. That's the characteristic. That is what God wants of the next king. Someone with a heart for God. What a wonderful thought in that. Again, that kind of begins to blow your minds as to what this is all about. Someone with a heart for God. So, you can make all sorts of choices based on all sorts of people. Samuel looked at the first guy, the first son, and said, that's fine, we'll have him. He looked, he was the biggest, the best, probably, whatever, we'll have him. But you see, God did not see a heart for him. So, the message for the Christian church in 2019 is here. God saw in David something which he didn't see in the rest of the family. And it is heart-based. Remember Psalm 139. Something, I don't know if you sing this one. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You know, it's a hymn I have trouble singing. You know, I said, how can I say that? How can I sing that? Search me, oh God. Do you really mean that when we're singing? Know my heart. Know my thoughts. And if there's wickedness, you know. Oh, what a thought. The third verse, Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart. Fill the only thing that matters in my life, says them. Fill my pure heart with thy great love divine. Take all my will, my passion, self and pride. I now surrender, Lord, in me abide. I often can't sing that. I can't sing it because... Do I really mean it? Am I really given to that point that uh, I, what I say I mean? And that's just one verse. The challenge of chapter 16, let's allow God this evening to try our hearts. And let's allow God to reveal everything which is not pleasing to him. This evening, let, let's be willing to change and to fit in God's design. May God challenge us this evening so that we may strive for pure hearts. God will then, and only then, use us for his glory. Verses 6 to 10 is a reminder of the first king's appointment. The firstborn, Eliab, was just as impressive as Saul was. But his appearance is deceptive. And this is the strong message of the chapter. And verse 6. Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. What a mistake. With the elder's son in front of him. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Isn't Samuel in for a shock? 
The family seems to decide that David was not suitable for this selection process. And so he's left attending the sheep. And he's given no authority by the family to attend this process. You know, the Lord often has a habit of choosing people who are the least likely candidate. And you know, with David's anointing, the family of Jesse then go about their business. Samuel is almost ready for retirement and he, he returns home, mission accompanied. And from verse 14, again, we see God at work. Changes which bring David from a hill top or a hillside to a palace. Verse 14. Here we are told of King Saul's lowest life point ever. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. God's spirit replaced by an evil spirit. An evil spirit from the Lord. But I don't think Saul actually noticed. Do you not think if the Lord had left you, you would know about it? This man's just not quite there. There's always going to be one winner between man and God. And what we see now is such a decline that he begins to use God to serve himself. And so he's fallen away dramatically. He started well with obedience and humility. Midlife, he's serving God. But the eye, the great eye becomes part of the picture here. There's a great warning, a great lesson to us to get rid of the eye. And that's easier said than done. But he's using God for himself, his life centre has God replaced by himself. The eye has taken over, but something important is there. I think the life change has been so gradual and so slow that it's never actually noticed. And the great danger for everyone in our lives is, have we checked whether you're with God or has the eye, the great eye, slowly taken over in our lives? Saul's life becomes now filled with terrors, terrors of the mind, terrors such that we can only imagine the suffering of this man. Saul's not only lost God's spirit, but he's also lost the support of Samuel. Saul gets to a point in his life where there is no relationship between himself and God. And there's certainly nothing between Samuel and himself. The problem was one of lack of obedience to divine commands. My way says Saul and not God's way. Saul is in serious trouble and he really doesn't know it. He doesn't feel it, I don't think. How can Saul live and not know that God's spirit has departed from him? Such was the state of his life before this important milestone. So Saul now becomes mentally ill. For Samuel 24 states that Saul's illness is due to his rebellion against God. And he's held responsible for every action he undertook. In Saul's day, what is the medical treatment for mental illness? Well, the answer is 
similar today, music therapy. Something which is still used today. And as the whole scene changes, back to the fields and the hillsides, back to a shepherd, back to a young man who is secretly anointed the next king. Here's the hand of God again. Notice that they didn't send for a medic or a witch or a spirit diviner. David came by recommendation from the very court itself. He came into a very responsible position. David was fit to purpose. All those hours of practice and rehearsal on the lyre. A simple stringed instrument, but skillfully played by David. Able to soothe the troubled mind. And yet David is still able to keep his anointing a, sac a secret. The lyre is the first musical instrument mentioned in the Bible, Genesis 4. It's the only instrument mentioned in the first five books of our Bible. And verse 18. Here's the recommendation. The characteristics from verse 18. <clears throat> he has a skill in music. He's brave, he's a warrior. He's well spoken and he's good looking. And what is important is this and. And the Lord is with him. That's the difference between David and the rest of his family. The Lord is with them. Saul was calmed down by the recommendation to bring David to the palace. Saul was actually becoming more and more dependent upon David in his life. <coughs> he was destined and dependent upon the man who was going to replace him. And we've just seen the birth of another prince in the house of Windsor. But I want you to notice where is the house of Saul today. And if I go back to my Matthew chapter 1. Where is Saul? Where is his family? Where is this family gone to? The jigsaw pieces are being put in. Piece by piece. But Saul... Saul never took sin seriously. He had a gradual spiritual decline which was unnoticed throughout his life. He lacked integrity. The Hebrew word means completeness, perfect, uprightness and full. <clears throat> Someone once said integrity is what you are in the dark all alone when no one else is around. Try building with your own strength and we'll fail. Saul's failure came. We must build our lives spiritually, brick by brick, as God puts another brick in our lives to create from the foundation a building. Let God place each brick in its perfect place in our lives. Saul gives us, I think, a great visual aid of a man prepared to go it alone. Outwardly, kind of looks still the same. Saul tells you, you can go it alone in your own strength for a while. But you see, eventually, failure will come. Could I just pray just now some verses from the book of Jude? 
and then I'll, I'll leave you to pray. And from verse 20 of Jude says this, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even their clothes stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and evermore. Amen.